would say that all-important verse in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which we looked at last time as a whole, chapter 5, verse 12, really supplies uh, the great thought that is expounded throughout those verses. And so we'll just look at that verse this morning. And hear now the word of God. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, which is a living word. It is a word which speaks to us every, every bit as much as it spoke to Israel in the wilderness, and they perished for lack of hearing, for unbelief in their hearing, rather. It is sad. And as it was spoken to the Romans and, and to Christians ever since, O oh God, your word continues to be declared so that it might be heard. But may it now, O oh God, we humbly pray, be heard in faith so that we would not perish but live and find that we are able by faith to enter at last into our promised rest as you speak to us until we get there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was just saying last time, we looked at uh, verses 12 through 21 as a whole. I, I don't think uh, that has been or will be my practice. Every time we come to a new section, we'll look at it as a whole and then we'll dissect it verse by verse. Uh, even though we'll do that with Leviticus tonight. I, I like general introductions to books, usually not to new passages, except insofar as uh, two things I emphasized last time. And that is really the unfamiliarity. Uh, of these these concepts, federal theology, and and two, well, well, so we have to become familiar again. And two, because these verses are so central to the argument that is made in Romans, especially concerning the doctrine of justification by faith and the assurance that is a consequence of it, and that we all hope to enjoy, not only to be justified, but to enjoy the assurance of faith and hope until the end. And as I said in that original sermon, we would look at them as a whole and then we would begin to look at them in a more detailed fashion. And yet, as was evident in my preaching of that sermon, I wasn't quite able to finish my general introduction. And so I would like to do so now and then uh, use the remainder of the sermon to look solely at verse 12. And I want to uh, make three points of general introduction before we look at verse 12. The first is briefly review a few key concepts so that we, we know what we're dealing with here. We considered last time the ideas of federal theology and federal headship, which involves uh, the doctrine of either union with Adam or union with Christ. Mankind considered as either being in Adam or in Christ. We either, this is the teaching of the passage, we either die in Adam and are condemned for his sin, or we live in Christ and are justified for his righteousness. That is the overarching federal theology that is at play. And that is the basic framework of salvation as taught in the Bible. But nowhere so clearly as in these verses. These verses. It is this fact whether a man is in Adam or in Christ, that determines how uh, he will fare on the last day and how he will be regarded by God as either uh, a goat 
Well, I should, I should put the goat on my left, shouldn't I? As the goats who are placed on his left are as the sheep which are placed on his right. That is what determines whether you are justified or condemned. Very similar, as he'll go on to say in, uh, in chapter 6, you're either under the law or under grace. It's a very similar framework. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And the basic uh, burden which I, I, I began, I think, uh, to share with you last time concerning these verses is once more their importance and their centrality. Uh, not only to theology in general, but as Hugh Martin expressed, and as I read that lengthy quote, the theology of the pulpit and the theology of the church. That is our own study and consideration of God himself and our ability to grasp the doctrines of or the doctrine of the covenants, as he said, uh, in which in the old preaching, a large place used to be assigned and yet which now has fallen out of favor and out of use. The value of this, let me say again, is that we would be able, assigning a large place to the doctrine of the covenants in the preaching and in the hearing of the gospel, that we would be able properly to grasp what God has done for man in Christ. In very important ways, Paul says, it mirrors what God was doing in Adam, which is what we call once more federal theology, the fate of all. Tied to the fate and the actions of one. But it might be helpful here as a second point of general introduction to remember where we are in the book of Romans. And so I would briefly outline the book of Romans leading up to where we are like this. First, under the first heading, Paul introduces his theme and his subject, which is the gospel of God, verses 3 through 4 and verses 14 through 17, which he is not ashamed of, which he is so eager to preach. The gospel of the grace of God, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. That's his theme. But then as his first major heading, having stated his introduction and his burden... He speaks of wrath and condemnation. That really is the first main teaching of the of the book of Romans. Wrath and condemnation, chapter 1, verse 18 through, through chapter 3, verse 20. And following this to the end of chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, as a second major heading, he outlines the nature of justification by faith. And so there's a very neat juxtaposition there. Point 1, wrath and condemnation. Point 2, the gospel of justification by faith. But having said that, as a third point, he tells us, and this is also very helpful for us to see, what faith involves, what faith is, and that is his whole burden in chapter 4. But then beginning in chapter 5 to the end of chapter 8 is a fourth major heading. He begins to tell us what is true of those who have been justified by faith, the blessings that accompany and flow from Our justification, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have and on and on he goes. And the great thing we have and that we enjoy, he seeks to stress, especially in chapters five and eight, the bookends of this new section and fourth major heading. The great thing we have is assurance and certainty. We are sure that we are saved. We are confident before God. Because of what God has done for us in Christ. Here is the man, Paul says, who has been justified and he is standing in grace and he knows it. And so he is rejoicing. 
And so the present discourse on federal theology, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which involves either the headship of Adam or Christ, that is either being in Adam or being in Christ, falls under this broader idea. It is, to use the language of Martin Lloyd-Jones, part of the much more that began in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And not only that, verse 11. Well, as Lloyd-Jones says in his preaching of this passage, he's going on with that thought. Which is especially evident when you come to verse Verse 15, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. And so this is one of the ways you could look at how these verses come in now as part of the much more, the much more that we have now in Christ than we, than we ever had before. I know that we might see that, Paul is saying. But it's a third general point of introduction Before we go on to look at these verses in particular, I want to outline what we have in verses 12 through 21 uh, very briefly. Verse 12, a comparison between Adam and Christ. A comparison, or it begins rather, this comparison between Christ and Adam. A comparison which helps us to see, uh, once again, how much more we have in Christ than we ever had in Adam. How much grace now abounds to us through Jesus Christ, the one man. But before we can appreciate the other side, the much more, we have to see the first side of things and how bad things were in Adam for all of us. And so the comparison and the contrast begins like this, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin and so on. You see, he's beginning a comparison. But the comparison which he begins, just as we die and we sin in Adam, so also you expect that to come in, or even so, that doesn't actually occur until verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's sin, even so through the one man's righteous act. That's verse 18. And so he begins a comparison that he doesn't finish in verse 12. Instead, in verses 13 through 17, he begins what is an extended parenthesis. And you may even notice that depending on which Bible you have. Although I'm sorry to say the most popular translation and perhaps uh, uh, the most common one even here, uh, the ESV has taken this out. It's taken out the parenthesis around verses 13 through 17. But if you go back to the King James or the New King James, which I'm preaching out of, you'll find this. You'll find verses 13 through 17 in parenthesis, suggesting that the thought begun in verse 12 is only completed in verse 18. And that in between, there's something of an aside or a clarification. There was something he said in verse 12 that he wants to clarify before he gets to the other side of the contrast. And so I am in agreement with the King James and the New King James, and whatever translations uh, put them in parenthesis. Because Paul says something at the end of verse 12 that requires explanation. And that is what he says at the end. Death spread to all men because all sinned. He doesn't want to rush to the other side and tell us what we get in Christ. He wants to clarify what that means. What does he mean when he says, well, the first part is clear. 
As Adam sinned, so he died. That's the first part of verse 12. But in the second part, he says, and so all died because all sinned. Well, that is something he needs to clarify both what he means and what he doesn't mean. And so we could divide this parenthesis in two. Verses 13 and 14, Paul explains the sense in which death passed to all because all sinned, even though he says all did not sin in the likeness of Adam, verse 14. But then as a second point, verses 15 and 17, he explains something else, something which he says now at the end of verse 14 and which he believes he also needs to explain, and that is at the end of 14 he says, uh, he says, even over those who have not sinned according to the likeness of Adam, of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. He introduces Adam as a type of Christ, and here is something else he wants to explain before he rounds off the comparison. Although perhaps this part is debatable, one could argue uh, that the parenthesis should end at the end of verse 14, and that uh, once he comes to verse 15, he takes up the comparison again between Christ and Adam. And there's much to be said for this, because that's what he does. Verses 14, uh, 13 and 14, he explains something about death passing to all. And then in verse 15, you see the comparison begins. The real contrast between Christ and Adam in their respective works. Now, that's one way to look at it, but I'm saying... Uh, I prefer to keep the parenthesis in place and to view verses 15 through 17 as an explanation of the sense in which Adam is a type of Christ. And if you accept that, then when you come to verse 18, and the parenthesis is there ended, then it's much easier to see what he's doing in those two verses. For there he is clearly finishing the contrast which he began in verse 12. And this becomes even clearer when you read verse 12 and then you jump to verse 18. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, break. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, and so on. But then finally, verses 20 and 21 uh, we could say are more of an afterthought where Paul takes up the subject of the law and the part that the, the law plays in all of this, which is actually mentioned in verse 13. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world. And then he doesn't say anything else about the law until he gets to verses 20 and 21. But Paul is, as you know, not one to leave loose ends. His thought is always tidy, especially since his hearers, it seemed, were so eager to misunderstand him. Uh, and so that is uh, the way to understand, I think, uh, this passage. And, and under those various headings, there will be a series of sermons. Verse 12, verses 13 through 14, verses 15 through 17, 18 and 19, and then 20 and 21. Those uh, six or so headings. But uh, having concluded the general introduction of verses 12 through 21, we can now look at the verses in particular. And my sole interest is what he says in verse 12. Uh, and again... I want to outline the basic structure of the verse. It is as follows. There are two main lines of thought. The first is, just as the sin of the one led to the death of the one, as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, the sin of the one led to the death of the one, so also the second line of thought, all died because all sinned. Just as one sin led to the death of the one, so also all died because all have sinned. Now, on the face of it, 
And taken alone, if you just took verse 12 and tried to build a theology of Adam in relation to mankind, the verse seems to present an obvious and straightforward idea, which is this. Adam was the first sinner, and so his sin introduced sin and death into the world. He sinned, and thus he died. So far, so good. But the next point is debatable. Some would say, based solely upon this verse, not only that, on the second side of things, everyone else also dies because all are sinners as well. Now, that is how many have taken this verse. But that's actually not what Paul is saying. Not exactly. To take these verses in this way is to miss the power of the parallelism that is present. It isn't that Adam died because Adam sinned and we died because we also sin. That's not actually the point that he's making. But rather he is saying that there is a connection between the sin of Adam and the sin of all. Just as there is a connection between the death of Adam and the death of all. And it is that connection that we must try to appreciate. A connection not of similarity. He'll go on to say that in verse 14. But a connection of another kind. Connection between my sin and the sin of Adam and my death and the death of Adam. But first, before we consider how that is so, let me take a step back and consider what is the value of considering this, my relationship to Adam? And here it seems to me that Paul is really answering two questions. The first is, why are things as they are? If you look at the history of humanity as presented in the Bible or just the history of humanity that you read in the history books and witness in real time in your own life, the question which man is bound to ask is, why are things so bad? Why is there so much sin? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much evil in the world? That's the first question he's answering. The second question he's answering in this, what is it that makes salvation possible in a world like this? And so in many ways, the question he is considering is not so much theological, even though I've said this is high theology at work, although theology which is worthy of the church. But the question he is considering is actually historical, which is why we read the history in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Paul is looking at humanity as a whole, beginning in the garden, but considered ever since then. And he's looking at how it is that mankind as a whole got into such a mess before God. How it ever came to pass that God would regard us all as sinners under his condemnation against whom he is revealing his wrath. And that is, you see, a historical question. And the part that Adam had to play in this is a question not only of theology, but of history. And then continuing on with this global perspective. He's considering at the same time how it is that God proposed to save mankind from this ruin and ministry, uh, misery, excuse me, by Jesus Christ, his son being sent into the world at a specific point in history. And thus, with this in mind, in verse 12, as we've seen, Paul begins a comparison between Adam and Christ, these two important historical figures. One which he does not finish in verse 12. We only get one side of things. 
And then, as you see, as I've said, he says something at the end that he wants to explain. And then he says something else that he wants to explain. And then he finishes off the contrast and the comparison in verse 18. Though perhaps you might say verse 15, depending on where you end the parenthesis. What Paul says in verse 12 accounts for two perplexing facts. One is the universality of sin. The fact that all are sinners without exception. The question is, the question at least that you ought to ask yourself, is how do you account for this? The fact that all are sinners. Well, Pelagians, I don't think there are many Pelagians today, thank God, but at periods in the history of the church there have been, and they've troubled the church with their false teaching. Although, if you agree with the Pelagian view that I'm about to present, then I think that makes you a heretic. I think that makes you a Pelagian, and we don't want that. Let me tell you what the Pelagians say. That all men are sinners only because they choose to be. It is a radical view of free will. It isn't because of some relation they sustain to Adam, the first man and the father of humanity. But it is merely the result and the consequence of a deliberate choice to sin. Now, I would also, uh, to a lesser extent, include many Arminians in this camp who are sometimes called semi-Pelagians. Those who say that the fact that we are sinners, again, is the result of deliberate choice. They do not see the fact of sin as having anything to do with our relation to Adam. It is merely our own decision to sin, being born with a free will. But that's not the answer which Paul gives. That is not Paul's account of the universality of sin, the fact that you and I and everyone else are sinners. The answer which Paul gives in this section is that the reason sin is universal can be traced to Adam's sin. And that from Adam we all inherit not only a sinful nature, as David says, we are born in sin and iniquity, but we also inherit the guilt of his first sin. The sin of Adam is imputed to all. But this also accounts for a second fact, and that is the universality of death. You can see that both are plainly taught in verse 12, not just the fact that as Adam sinned, all sin, but as Adam died, all die. As Adam sinned and died for sin, so all die because all have sinned. That's the teaching of the verse. Again, we might consider here how some have dealt with this thought falsely. How is it that men account for the universality of death, the fact that all die? And I think today we would have to say that the man on the street doesn't account for the fact. In fact, he does all that he can to ignore it and to put the thought out of his mind and even uh, with respect to his own death, to put it off as far in the future as he possibly can, as though it never was going to happen. The way that men and women deal with death today is by ignoring it. They ignore the obvious fact that all who are born are going to die, just as everyone before us has. Or perhaps if we were to come into the church, the answer to the question, why is it that all die? The answer that most would give is because all sin. All die because all sin. Which is a good answer insofar as it goes, but it is not the teaching of these verses, nor is it the teaching of verse 12. Indeed, Paul immediately clarifies, and we'll see this next time, that he does not mean that in verses 13 and 14. Many, he says, do not sin in the likeness of Adam. 
It isn't that we sin like Adam did that accounts for our death. Because some people don't sin like Adam did, and yet they still die. No, the fact is, Paul says, the answer, rather, to the question, why is it that all die, is that Adam sinned. It is because Adam sinned that all die. And that is the precise force of the contrast at play, as I hope to show you. But let me first look at the terms themselves. As Adam sinned, so he died. So we all die because we all sin. There's four. There are four things that he says here. And after looking at them each individually, I'll try to show you how they all fit together. The first thing he says is that through one man, sin entered the world. Now, just stop there and consider precisely what he's saying before uh, you go any further. This is immediately, you realize, an arresting thought. Paul is taking us back to the garden and he's reminding us that sin was not part of the original creation. God created man, male and female, in righteousness, holiness and knowledge. The original world and the garden especially was perfect and holy and sinless. There was no sin. Sin was not part of God's design or intention for humanity or for the world he made. But still, sin entered. It came in where it was not before. And how did it do so? Well, it did so like this, Paul says, or at least alluding to what uh, to what occurred. It came in by the serpent entering the garden, tempting the woman and the man to sin. It, it did not enter through the serpent. Let me be clear. Temptation entered by the serpent, but it was by their agreement to sin in the moment of temptation. That sin entered the world. Sin did not enter the world by God. God is not the author of sin. It came by man, by the one man, Adam, who was the first man and the head of humanity. We are considering here the doctrine of the fall. Which is once more a matter of pure history. The way sin came into the world was by the sin of Adam. This was the origin of sin or the original sin. But take now the second phrase and death through sin. What he's saying here is also perfectly straightforward. And it's also a matter of history. Death like sin was also something that was not included as part of God's original design. It was not part of the original created order. God did not sow corruption and death into the flesh of our first parents when he created them. He did not create them with this principle of decay and the propensity of death. It was not inevitable that they should die. No, they were meant by God's design to live. And if they had passed the probationary test in the garden, there's Genesis 2. If they had shunned and rejected the temptation of the serpent to eat of the very tree God told them not to eat of, they would have been confirmed in the state of righteousness and life forevermore. Adam would have been justified. And as a consequence of his justification, he would have been made to partake of the tree of life. And we, along with him, But as things were, by their sin, they were made to die. Not at first, but death became part of their world now. Animals began to die. 
as we find in the sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3. And eventually so too did they, but not before one of their sons died. Abel. Death now was a regular part of the existence of Adam and Eve. But do you see the tragedy of this? It was in the case of Adam and Eve that this need not have happened. It was not something that God intended or wanted for Adam and Eve, but it was the result of their own sin. Death came into the world as the consequence of their sin, and especially Adam's. Death, we will later read in Romans, is the wages of sin. It is the consequence. It is the judicial penalty upon man from God for sin. The Lord had said in Genesis chapter 2, on the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And he meant it. He meant it. And what he meant is, on that day, death will come into the world. You will begin to taste and to experience the bitter fruits of death. You, along with all of your children. And so they did, and so do we all. Bringing us to the next phrase, the third phrase, and thus death spread to all men. Already you can see the connection between the sin of Adam and the death of all. All died because Adam sinned. Death came to Adam through sin and thus death spread to all men. In other words, as it came to Adam, it did not come to him only, it being death. Death came to all us as well along with him. And this because the fourth phrase, all have sinned. Everyone agrees this is the crucial phrase. It is the thing that needs to be explained, that all die because all have sinned. What does Paul mean when he says this? Well, we've already seen that some take it to mean all die because all are sinners like Adam. We all die because we all sin. But we've already seen why that is an impossible interpretation because of what he says in verse 14. That many do not sin in the likeness of Adam, and yet they still die. It is not our similarity in our sin to Adam that accounts for our death. It's rather something else. We need to let our understanding of this phrase, because all sinned, be controlled and determined by the controlling thought of these verses. And the controlling thought is unquestionably the relation of all to the one. So to say I die because I sin does not fit in here at all. The sin in view here is not our own sins, but it is the one sin of Adam. And when he says all have sinned, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about present sins. He's talking about the one sin of Adam. And I think a simple simple grammar lesson here will help us. When he says, he doesn't say all are sinners. He says all have sinned. He places that in The aorist tense. He's talking about not something that we're presently doing. The present fact that we are sinners and that we presently sin. He's talking about something that happened in the past. All have sinned. When? That's the question. When? Well, obviously. In the historic event that he's speaking of. In the one sin of the one man, Adam. And when he says all have sinned, he is including us in that sin. He is telling us in some sense that we participated in the one sin of Adam. And this is something that stands out more clearly. I can see once again, time is getting away from me. 
But if you just read verses 15 through 18, you would see this so clearly. The one man sinned, the many died. The one man sinned, the many were counted sinners, and so on. That's the teaching of the passage. And that's the teaching of verse 12 as well. How could Paul be any clearer? Especially when you allow all of the verses to inform our view of verse 12. The many die for the one sin. The many are accounted sinners by the one sin of Adam. So all die because all have sinned. Verse 12. But the sin which is in view here, which we committed and participated in, is the original sin. Which brings us to the question of how that is possible. And here are there, there are two main answers uh, to this which have historically been given. In other words, the question becomes, what is our relationship to Adam? What is it that accounts for our participation in his sin? And the first is called the realistic view. I don't want to spend too much time with this because it's not my view and I do not believe it's right. But it is a view that there's something to be said for and which has historically been given in the church. And it is the idea simply that we existed in some sense in Adam's loins when he committed his first sin. In other words, that we were there along with him in the garden, partaking and participating of his sin because he was the father of us all. And we were all comprehended naturally in him in that sense. Now, there is something to be said for this view based upon what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, when he says that, that uh, Levi paid tithes to, to Melchizedek since he was present in the loins of his grandfather Abraham. In one sense, you might say, Levi was there with Abraham when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. He was comprehended in his father and his grandfather and anticipated in him. So that. He was present and he paid those tithes along with Abraham, his father, grandfather. And thus it is argued in the same way. That the same can be said about our relation to to Adam. We were there with him. We were comprehended in him, in his loins. We were anticipated by him when he committed that first sin. And we sinned along with him in that sense. Now, that is not my view. I don't believe it's the right view. But let me just share that with you. And there is, as I say, something to be said for it. But the better view, which accounts for Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 5, and here I would also include the teaching of Hebrews, is that which is called the representative view. And that is what we've already seen and considered as involved in federal theology. Adam was in the garden under the covenant of works, the federal representative head of humanity. We were included in him because he represented us. That's who Adam was. And thus he not only died for his sin, but so do we all. Verse 12. And all are counted sinners and thus die for the one sin of Adam, our representative, verse 15, and so on. Now, to be consistent, we must also acknowledge that if he had not sinned, but if he had brought in righteousness positively by his obedience, all would have been justified and granted eternal life by the one act of obedience of the one man, Adam. But that's not what happened, is it? What Paul is accounting for is what happened as a result of his sin. And why his sin had such 
grievous consequences for the whole of humanity. All were made sinners. All were made to die. All stand under the sentence of condemnation. How come? Well, it was because of the covenant that was made with Adam on behalf of all. And thus, according to this view, the representative view, all sinned in Adam, their representative. When he sinned, his sin was imputed to all because all were in him and because he represented all. And so we all die because all are accounted sinners by Adam's one sin. Now, another way to look at this. The same idea of representation is by the idea of the priesthood. Because the idea of the priesthood involves that of representation. One man chosen on behalf of others to represent them before God. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's the principle you find throughout the Old Covenant. That's the principle you find in Jesus Christ himself. And that's the principle which you find in the garden as well. The priesthood, the idea and the fact of the priesthood is only possible based upon this principle of representation. God dealing with many on the basis of. Or on behalf of the one. And I confess it only just occurred to me. Though now uh, I'm sure I'm right in saying that Adam. Was the first great high priest of humanity. As he stood in the garden. The sanctuary of God. He bore as, uh, as Levi and his sons did after him. He bore on his breast. And on his shoulders. The names of humanity. Whom he represented. In his one person. Representing all before God. And God dealt with all on the basis of the one man, Adam. And the tragedy of this one sin. Is that he not only fell and that he not only died, but we along with him. But that isn't the whole story. For Adam was not the only great high priest of humanity. There were others, of course, many lesser priests who came in after him, the sons of Levi. But the really important figure is the one who comes in the likeness of Adam, of whom Adam was but a type, Paul tells us in verse 14. The second Adam and great high priest of the elect of God, Jesus Christ, he who bore the names of many on his breast. And on his shoulders and who by his obedience justified the many. That is the whole glory of the gospel, beloved. It is that God should justify me by the righteousness of him, Jesus Christ, because he now represents me before God. And as he goes, so I go. But you see, the idea of representation did not begin with Christ. It began not even with the priests of the old covenant. It began with Adam, which means that before I came to be in Christ by faith as a Christian, I was in Adam. I stood before God in Adam condemned. And it was Adam's actions in the garden that determined my fate before God. But once you see what God was doing in Adam, it is easier to see and to understand what God later did for me in Christ. Do you remember what he says at the end of Romans chapter four? Just before we get to chapter five. He was delivered over for my trespasses. He was raised for my justification. But how precisely does his death pardon my trespasses? And how precisely does his resurrection Lead to my justification. The answer is. 
because he represented me in his death and he represented me in his resurrection. He stands in the gap as my great high priest and he claims me as his own in all that he does. You think of what he says about laying down his life. I lay down my life for the sheep so that they might experience everlasting life. There is the doctrine of the priesthood, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And you can read all about it in the book of Hebrews. All that he does, he does for me. And God, the Father, accepts it on my behalf and as my salvation. That is the structure of salvation. That is the doctrine of the gospel. And seeing that, are we not able to say with Paul, indeed, how much more does God do for me in Christ than he ever did in Adam? In Adam, he held forth the possibility of salvation But it was never more than a possibility unrealized. And all we were left with was that awful thought of what could uh, what could have been. That is the tragedy of Adam's fall. But in Christ, it is much more than that. It is the certainty of the thing itself achieved once and for all by the life and death of Jesus Christ. And it is on that basis, on the basis of his work on behalf of me, that I am saved and that I am sure And even confident in my approach to God. For I go to him always. Not on the basis of my own work. But as one who is in Christ. And that gives me all the confidence a sinner could ever hope to have. Before a holy God. Much more than I ever could have had. In Adam or on my own. Amen. And let us come now to the table.